Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, how one man holds all the cards for the Brooklyn Democratic Party. The proxy cards were pre-filled out, and so what that means is on the line where you might write who you want to give your proxy vote to, it said Frank Sedio's name. And then, grappling with civilian casualties of American wars, looking at the body count and beyond. I remember a day when I was talking to a a colonel, and I said, so what's the number of civilian casualties so far? And he said, mm, I can't remember. And he looked at the captain. We were in a press conference with a bunch of the Baghdad press corps. He said, do you remember? He said, I can't remember. Hi, thanks for joining us. In a moment, we'll be joined in studio by Brooklyn author and journalist Nick McDonald to discuss his new book, The Bodies in Person, an Account of Civilian Casualties in American Wars. But first, a local war, if you'll excuse the hyperbole, in Brooklyn's Democratic Party. Last Thursday night, local Democrats held their first post-primary committee meeting. Sounds like dull fare for the uninitiated, but the six-hour-long meeting actually held some drama. It all has to do with proxy voting and the fact that the votes of one man trumped the more than 500 votes of committee members who were actually present. To tell us about the seemingly undemocratic process in the Democratic Party, joining us by phone is New York Times Metro reporter Tyler Pager, who covered the meeting. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm sure that most of our viewers are maybe not even aware of what the Kings County Democratic Committee is. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, definitely. So all the boroughs um, have these uh, county Democratic parties where they come together and and help craft the party platform. They also play a role in choosing local judicial candidates and, and other Democratic nominees in special elections. Um, so while it is the lowest rung of party governance in the state, it, it can play an important role in crafting party platform and also picking nominees for for seats and judgeships. And so these meetings happen all the time, but what was so unusual about the one last Thursday? Right, so they would happen actually less frequently than you think. It varies by borough, but in in, in Brooklyn, I, I my understanding is that it happens twice a year. Um, and, and the reason that this one was particularly um, raucous and, and controversial was that it was the first meeting since the September primary where new committee members were elected to their seats. And, and in this election, the, the progressive coalition led by New Kings Democrats really worked hard to get people to fill these seats and, and run for office. They had a, um, a campaign called Rep Your Block, um, because a lot of these, these committee members represent just their block or, or, or a few streets where they live. There's more than 5,000 available seats, but only about 2,200 of them are filled. Um, so this meeting was the first time that these new candidates, a lot of whom were supported and affiliated with progressive groups like New Kings Democrats, were part of the committee. So they showed up in record numbers. There was more than 500 of them there. And they were excited and energized to start to make changes in the operation of this Kings County Democratic Committee. But what ended up happening was their voice didn't really have any impact on the formal proceedings. And that's because the Democratic leader, Frank Setio in Brooklyn, had these proxy votes. And how that works is this is something that is, is typical, that because they need a quorum, they often send out these cards where committee members who aren't able to make the meeting, whatever night it may be, this was Thursday night at 6 p.m. at Kingsborough Community College 
deepened Brooklyn. And, and so it's reasonable that not all 2,200 people will be able to make it. But Frank Sedio yeah, sent out these proxy cards, and he got more than 500 proxy votes for himself. And, and there were some unusual there. things about the cards that he sent out. Right. Is that right? So that, that's another aspect of this as well, is that when he sent out, so both both sides in terms of the more establishment Democrats and progressive Democrats sent out these proxy cards. But there was some controversy over his proxy cards because when he sent them out, he sent them along with a flyer that that had the names of district leaders who were one step above committee members and represent a larger swath of Brooklyn. And he put the names of some people on those letters and they didn't give him the, the, their support to do that. In fact, he spelled some of their names incorrectly. And, and we have so Doug Schneider, who was one of the people in question, who said the level of incompetence in trying to be unethical was ridiculous. Right. And so that really generated a lot of uproar from these district leaders who were put in uh, an effort that they weren't supportive of. But also the proxy cards were pre-filled out. And so what that means is on the line where you might write who you want to give your proxy vote to, it said Frank Sedio's name. And so some people have complained that, that people didn't fully understand what these proxy cards meant, signed them anyways, and sent them in, thereby giving their vote to Mr. Sedio. And in fact, he got more than 500 of those. So when there was 500 people in the room, not all who were part of this progressive movement, but the vast majority were, and they were voting a certain way, it didn't end up mattering because Mr. Sedio had those 500 proxy cards, more than 500 filed, and so whatever he voted, that's the way it went. And what was he voting for, and what were the new King's Democrats hoping to uh, push forward in their agenda? What was the outcome of this? Right. So I think the biggest thing that that really generated the most shouting and and, and uproar was over the committee leadership. Um, so at, at the first meeting after the primary, they select new officers. And Mr. Sedio, his pre-approved slate of officers went up against a slate of officers proposed by this coalition of reformers like the New King's Democrats. And they put up people for the chair and various different positions on committee leadership. And so that's where there was a lot of anger because they didn't even end up voting on the reform slate. Once the SETIO slate went up, it was voted, voted on, and most people voted no on it in the room, but because SETIO had these proxy votes, it was approved, and that's now the new committee leadership. The other thing that was voted on, and this was a little bit smaller, was judicial nominations for the Democratic Party in Brooklyn. These were people that Sedio and his team picked, and they were then automatically confirmed. And what was the mood in the room once the reformers realized that their votes were not going to count that evening? So there was a, a wide range of emotions that we saw on display in the room um, over the course of, the, as you mentioned, the six-hour meeting. Um, and people were dispirited. People were angry. I think, uh, as I wrote in my article, a lot of people found their way to county committee after the election of Donald Trump seeking ways to get involved. And, and this is the lowest uh, form of, of uh, Democratic Party involvement in the area. And so they were excited to, to be elected officials for the first time. But as they got there, they saw that their vote and their voice was trumped by one person. Um, so I think a lot of people left feeling rejected and dispirited that they, they ran for office, they won, they were excited to have their voices heard, and that wasn't the case. At the same time, some people said they felt even more determined. They felt determined to, the next time around, get more people to come, register more people to run for office, and then try to change the tide 
in terms of being able to overcome these proxy cards that boosted up the Democratic establishment. And it sounds like there was an attempt to evaluate how this proxy voting system works. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So there was a a proposal introduced that was passed by the general body of the committee and and will now go on to be reviewed by the Rules Committee and, and other members. But the proposal would limit the party leader's ability to collect proxies and would also clarify what the proxy cards are. So it's not getting rid of the proxy cards, but they want to put language on these flyers and cards that make it very clear what signing a proxy card means and also limit who you can give it to. Um, The proposal says you could only give it to the district leader in your area so that not all proxies can just go to one person. Sounds like that is imminently reasonable considering what happened last Thursday. Tyler Pager, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, our conversation with author Nick McDonald. Since George W. Bush announced the global war on terrorism in 2001, American and allied invasions and bombing campaigns have resulted in untold civilian casualties. Literally untold because no one seems to be able to count them, whether they've been caused by drones, disease, or gunfire. But a Brooklyn-based author and journalist has tried to take stock, not only to attach a figure to the atrocities, but also a face of the dead, those who narrowly escaped death, and those tasked with cleaning up in the aftermath. As Dave Eckers noted, after reading the bodies in person, the human impact of our way of fighting ISIS, among other targets, will never leave your conscience, and never should. To talk about his recently published book, The Bodies in Person, An Account of Civilian Casualties in American Wars, we welcome Nick McDonald. Thanks for coming on Moment 2 BK. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit in broad strokes, what is this book and why why now? Why did you decide to put it out now? The book is the stories of people who are affected by these wars at the very ground level. And the reason now was because in the way that a life goes, it sort of just started after my last project. But I think now it's particularly important as our attention is away from these wars. I think that there's so much mess in the United States right now that we forget sometimes that we are engaged in these wars abroad. And you're mainly looking at civilian casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last decade or so, is that right? That's right. And right now, so much of our focus seems to be on national news and not on international news. So it seems like a good time to remind people that we are still engaged in these foreign wars and that the toll is um, is uncountable, as we mentioned. That's right. I think that, firstly, those two ideas, domestic politics and foreign politics, are really connected. Foreign politics, foreign policy are largely a result of the way that we deal with each other here and then our relationship with people there as well. But the second thing you mentioned, the question of uncountable, I think that that's an important thing to remember as I did this book, because these, this is countable. It's not a question of whether or not it's possible to count. It's a question of the resources we devote to figuring out what happened. And so how do we go about counting civilian lives lost? So that is the tricky part. And I, a lot of the book was that, figuring out how people do it and trying to understand their process. So sometimes I talked with the Baghdad Ministry of Health. They're responsible for doing it. Sometimes I talked with the American military. They are responsible too. But this number is a contentious number. And so in every incident where there is any uncertainty, which is most incidents, there are minimizers and maximizers of the number. People want a number to align with their agenda. So the way to figure it out is to go and 
try to count yourself. And you count like you would count anything. You talk to the people who know, the people who were there, you, pictures, evidence like that. And you mentioned something called excess mortality, which is a crazy term to me because it suggests that there's some mortality that is not excess. Um, And you mentioned an anecdote of a woman who died of cardiac arrest while in a hospital, but doctors weren't able to get to her in time because they were treating wounded militiamen. Um, Talk to me about excess mortality and if that is technically counted in civilian deaths. Mm -hmm. It's not counted in civilian deaths. And it doesn't really make sense, I think, for it to count that way, but I think it's something to pay attention to. In that hospital, for example, the doctors and the militiamen who were in there would not have thought of this woman as a civilian casualty. To those guys, a civilian casualty is someone who gets caught in a crossfire. But if you zoom out a little bit and you think about, well, why is it that this woman in this emergency room full of doctors is not going to survive the afternoon? It's because of this battle that is going on. And so it's a blowback, which is an unlovely term for the unintended consequences of American foreign policy. But all of this is not something that anybody is talking about or thinking about in the moment in that emergency room, right. which is the flip of this. It's, the, it's this most personal binary, this on-off switch of life-death. So were you able to come up with a number? Ah, so this question, this is the one. And I would say first that the number is immensely important, but it is very difficult to come up with one. The best study that has been done of this sort of thing was by Asmat Khan and Anand Gopal in the New York Times last year in Mosul. And they came up with a number for that, that particular campaign trying to dislodge ISIS from Mosul. And based on that number, if you extrapolate it out, they found that the number was 31 times, sorry to go on a bit about this, the numbers are the tricky part. So the number was 31 times what the coalition was saying it was. Mm. And I estimate based on their door-to-door calculations and modeling that 2014 to 2017, which is how long it took to get ISIS out of Mosul, you had uh, 13,862 people, civilians, killed. And that's just by American airstrikes, which is a lot. And if you actually zoom that out to year by year and extrapolate it that way from the whole Iraq war, 2003 to 2018, you're at around 34,000 people, which to put it in perspective is about the population of Beverly Hills. Wow. And so 13,000, that's only one three-year period for one campaign uh, by airstrikes. Mm -hmm. So the question that your book seems to be grappling with is, um, is one life worth more than another, which is a question that you pose at the end of the book. Sorry if that was a spoiler for anyone. Um, Can you Tell me about how does the U.S. government try to answer that question? What is the value of a civilian life as opposed to the value of an enemy combatant that they are trying to take down? Mm -hmm. Well, you can work out the numbers about that. So in 2007, the Government Accountability Office reported that the dollars that you would pay to somebody who got killed by accident, whatever that means, more on that later, was about $2,500. So that was the actual value of a life. So if a civilian dies, Mm -hmm. their family is compensated $2,500. It was at certain times in certain places supposed to be the case. But that for a very long time was ad hoc, always ad hoc really. And the history of that kind of compensation payment goes back to the Korean War, 1953, the Foreign Claims Act. But in truth, it was catch as catch can throughout these campaigns. 
I'm curious that it goes back to the Korean War, and I wonder how we have we valued different civilians of different nationalities at different points in time differently, or is that just sort of like um, you know kept pace with inflation? <laughs> Who makes that decision? What a human life is worth. So these numbers are rarely made explicit. It's rarely that an Iraqi is worth 2,500 and an Afghan is worth more or less. But when you start to work out the amounts of money that were paid for this stuff, we can figure out what the actual number would be. As for who makes the calculation, that's one of the great questions I tried to figure out in this book. And the answer is everybody and nobody, and which is a non-answer. I mean that the president, in the end, gets to decide how many people he's willing to kill in an airstrike, mm -hmm. how many civilians he tolerates. Tell me what the non-combatant casualty cutoff value is. So that's what we were just talking about, okay. the, the NCV. And this, the way this works is that there's a, there's a sheet of paper, for supposed to be for every airstrike, not necessarily dynamic ones, but even those, dynamic even in the middle of the battle. And on this sheet of paper are the number of people you are trying to kill. And then there are the number of people who you estimate will die, innocent people. And there's a list, you know, of where you're aiming for. So there's a, you know, bunker or urban housing development or stadium or any of these things going down. And another number at the bottom of this is the NCV, which is how many people we will tolerate killing innocent people. And so for most of these airstrikes, that number is zero, or at least it was when I was starting doing it for most of them. But for some of them, the number is higher than zero. And the, the ceiling of that number went sort of uh, geographically, was geographically determined. So in Iraq and Syria in 2016, that ceiling was 10, meaning that if you were going to kill nine bad guys, uh, nine innocent people to get this bad guy, you're okay. But if you kill 11, can't do it. So the question of who gets to decide that is a good one. And, excuse me, ultimately the president gets to decide it, but where that's delegated to is an important question. And I saw that you interviewed one individual who was in Baghdad, uh, and he said that during his time that number was 20, that if you were going to kill um, 20 or fewer civilians, that was cool. You didn't need authorization. Anything over 20 needed a national-level authorization. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, and is that, is that an airstrike that may just take out a single combatant? Yeah. That would be a high-value target idea. They as you might expect, are not real forthcoming with how they make these calculations and this kind of information. Mm -hmm. All the acronyms in the book, NCV, there seems to be a real attempt to uh, put distance between the person reading the acronym and the fact that you're actually talking about a loss of life. Um, and also, you know, there's been much talk about drones and sort of how there is literal distance put between the person pulling the trigger and, and the people on the ground. Do you think that we are more willing to take a civilian life because of this purposeful distancing? Yes, I do. I think that as soon as you sit with somebody, the closer you can get to somebody, the less likely you are to want to have them be killed in your name. Talk to me about some of the people that you interviewed in the book, um, and uh, you talked to everybody from um, people in Iraq who were in charge of going and trying to dig people out under rubble. You talked to family members of, of civilian casualties. Um, tell me about tell me about the landscape of people who are impacted by by these decisions being made uh, in the halls of government here. It's a wide range of interesting characters, uh, and in the halls of government here, I often spoke with soldiers and policy folks who were very torn up about this. And the soldiers who are involved in this kind of stuff, to me at least, say, of course we don't want innocent people to die. 
So, and this is what's interesting question. If, you, if all the people who are on the ground say, well, we want to do everything in our power to stop innocent people dying, how does it keep happening? And one answer is, well, it's just war. That's what happens in war. Uh, but once you get to that level, maybe it's worth thinking about, well, what are we doing for these wars? And so it, it leads you to bigger questions, mm -hmm. is the hope. And right now, um, there's been much discussion about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which has had huge civilian casualties, including a busload of schoolboys in August that was struck by a, a Saudi-led airstrike. Um, so the U.S. is not directly involved in this, but we are selling arms to this coalition. Can you tell me a little bit about that current situation and any lessons that you might want to put forward based on your research for mm -hmm. this book? Well, I'm not an expert in Yemen. I didn't didn't visit that place, but I can tell you the lesson would be make that non-combatant cutoff value number zero. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would be willing to even risk killing innocent people in the name of some unknowable future security risk is the thing that makes the least sense to me. I would imagine that perhaps somebody at the DoD would say, "All right, but um, you know, if you're going to kill five civilians and you're taking out a high-value target, well, that person might in the future go on and kill hundreds of people, thousands of people." What would you say to that? We are not very good at predicting the future. You have noticed a little bit, maybe in the wars over the last 15 years, that things didn't go exactly as they were planned. But more than that, the kind of utilitarian calculus that that involves has a way of sliding into crime and trouble, and in many cases already is. And the more we can stick to our, our absolutist values, the idea that lives are all the same, that all people are created equal, uh, the more we inoculate ourselves against those kind of crimes. You also seem to be musing a bit in the book about whether or not uh, you are complicit, whether we are complicit as Americans. And Dave Eggers' quote talks about that too, this sort of crime of conscience that's on our shoulders. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't think that we are. The word that comes to mind for me is not complicit, mm -hmm. but involved comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And the way that this started for me was that I was a reporter in Baghdad, and I was trying to interview a basketball team. and. The interview didn't happen, and then I found out later that the people I was supposed to interview had been killed in an ambush, allegedly because they were going to talk to a foreign reporter. It turned out this whole story was a sham, so it was a great relief when I found out. But that incident got me thinking about unintended consequences as an American citizen, as a reporter, as anything all not a drone pilot. You don't have to be pulling the trigger to be involved in American politics. Just being a voter makes you involved. So as I mentioned earlier, so much of our focus right now is on domestic issues, which is odd because in George W. Bush's presidency, it seemed like we were able to hold two things in our head at once. So many people might think of this as sort of something that's in the past, but in fact, these strikes are ongoing. And just before the interview, we talked about an email that you got. You're on a, a CENTCOM yeah, let's see here. Um, mailing list, is that right? Sort of like Strike Watch or the Daily Strike Roundup? Yeah, Tell really me a little is, bit about that. It's like that. a ruin your day kind of email blah blast you get every morning. But this is the, this is the CJTF Operation Inherent Resolve strike release for October 1st, 2018. So you, anybody who's watching, could, if you wanted to, find a way to sign up for this thing on their website. And, and for our listeners on the podcast right now, um, Nick is just going through his phone, yeah. checking his email, and, and uh, looking at this, this. Yeah, so this, this says October 1st, 2018 for immediate release. And then it talks about, let's see here, weekly strike summary between September 24 and September 30. Coalition military forces conducted 64 strikes, consisting of 105 engagements in Iraq and Syria. 
And this is the email that reminds me in the morning that we are still at war in these places. Absolutely. And like, what type of information are they sending out to journalists, other interested parties, our viewers at home, potentially? <laughs> Uh, so they talk about the place where it happened. So one here, for example, says, uh, near Abu Kamal, 10 strikes engaged 14 tactical units and destroyed two command and control centers, one truck, one up-armored vehicle, four fighting positions, and two supply routes. So that is really not very much information for anybody who is not already in a command center. And in a way, it's sort of is non-information or obfuscating information. It's the kind of information that maybe makes you think, oh, I know something, but actually, it's hard to know anything from that. And it says nothing about loss of life, combatant or civilian. Sometimes it will say things like that. But the history of the coalition on civilian casualties is not great. I remember a day when I was talking to a, a colonel and he was telling me that the number, I said, so what's the number of civilian casualties so far? And he said, mm, I can't remember. And he looked at the captain. We were in a press conference with a bunch of the Baghdad press corps. He said, do you remember? He said, can't remember, which is not a good look. And he was our chief spokesman at the time in Baghdad. Right. Uh, and that day, the number was 41, actually. But even by that day, just by myself, I had talked to more than 41 families, all of whom had lost one or more people. So the numbers are much bigger than we're saying. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, once again, the book is called... The Bodies in Person, An Account of Civilian Casualties in American Wars. And is it out right now? Can it's people right buy now. it? You can buy it. Great. Thanks so much, Nick McDonald. Thanks for having me. And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. Cycle 8 of the New York City Council's participatory budgeting has officially begun. For those not in the know, participatory budgeting, PBNYC, is a city program that allows residents to vote on how to use $1 to $1.5 million for projects forwarded by community members. PBNYC gives New Yorkers the opportunity to gather, brainstorm, research, develop, and vote for projects that improve their neighborhoods. Remember, anyone can submit an idea for their community district, but keep in mind your proposal must be for capital projects that focus on physical infrastructure for the public's benefit. Categories range from cultural and community facilities to streets, sidewalks, and transit. The deadline to submit a proposal is October 5th, so be sure to check Brooklyner's resource list and send in your ideas. The clock struck 420 at Long Island University last Wednesday as more than 300 people convened to weigh in on the legalization of marijuana throughout New York State. The audience rallied around suggestions in favor of prioritizing permits for low-income residents, reparations for nonviolent offenders, and overall low taxation on weed-related businesses. You'll be interested to know that even though our friend Mary Jane has many nicknames, it wasn't until the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 that the word marijuana became part of the common vernacular. In fact, it was mostly used by opponents of the drug as an exotic-sounding alternative name to cannabis. Marijuana was easy to stigmatize and characterize as leading to social deviancy among Latin American minorities. And while that stigmatization definitely worked, studies show your neighbor Pete is smoking more bud than your neighbor Pedro. The New York City Council unanimously approved legislation urging the Metropolitan Transit Authority and Governor Andrew Cuomo to provide train riders with an electric bus fleet during the shutdown of the L-Line, instead of the 200 diesel buses called for in the current plan. 
Reportedly, the emissions output from those buses would be equivalent to putting 4,400 additional cars on the road. Councilmember Rafael L. Espinal Jr. said the MTA should take the shutdown as an opportunity to support climate change initiatives. Quote, we have to remember that the reason the L train is being shut down is because of Hurricane Sandy, a hurricane that we look back on and can point to climate change as being the reason this happened in New York City. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. And that's the show for today. Please join Jarrett Murphy tomorrow when he talks with state Senate candidate Andrew Gennardis, trying one more time to turn a red seat blue in South Brooklyn. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.